Welcome to How I Raised It, the podcast that goes behind the scenes with entrepreneurs who've raised capital. We uncover the tips, tricks, and techniques they use to get investors to write a check. Strap in and turn it up. Hi, welcome to another episode of How I Raised It, produced by Foundersuite.com. Today I have Sachin Dev Dugal of Engineer.ai. How are you doing? Sachin? I'm good. How are you? Good. Did I get your name right? Yes, you did. Okay. Just want to make sure I've, I've butchered a few on this show. Now, where are you coming to us from today? Uh, today from Los Angeles. Is that your office in the background or are you in a co-working space? Uh, I, it's our office inside a co-working space. Ah, looks cool. Which, which co-working space are you in? We're in a, we work in Playavis, or well, not Playavis, Millennium Drive, so near Santa Monica. Oh, cool. Yeah. Santa Monica is a booming little area, isn't it, for startups? It is. We're in the middle of a thunderstorm right now, but otherwise it's, it's great. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm here in San Francisco and, you know, I've got all my relatives in the Midwest just freezing their tails off. So we're pretty lucky, I think. <laughs> um, awesome. Very good. Let's talk about uh, engineer.ai. What do you guys do? So, look, I think um, our vision is uh, that we believe everyone should be able to unlock their potential. Um, and empowered to unlock their potential, you know, to, to build things. Today, building most businesses is centered around technology from the Uber for ski instructor or the little girl that wants to do Pinterest or butterflies or the BBC uh, producer who wants to build uh, an app to sort of uh, engage with his audience. Um, there are many people that have ideas that want to build things that are software related or technology related, but uh, they don't make the move. Uh, and a lot of that is because they're afraid. Mm -hmm. They're they're afraid of what they don't know. They're afraid of what they don't have. You know, resources. Uh, they're afraid of the unknown. It, the whole thing is very overwhelming. And so, um, our why is really that. And 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 a lot of our sort of philosophy of how we do things is to really question uh, the tried and tested route. Uh, conventional thinking, really push back on, well, do you need to make this a consulting experience? Why can't this be like making cars, you know, where you have these common building blocks, the chassis, the wheel, the steering column, you have an assembly line and you have different people that contribute to moving the car along the assembly line. And so what we've built is a platform um, that uses a human-assisted AI to take the idea in your head um, to the app in your hand or the website in, in, in your browser or the wearable or the IoT. And um, it's really using um, uh, a set of building blocks, um, so much like Lego, uh, that make up software, everything from Facebook login to Stripe integration to Mixpanel. Um, and then using a network of, uh, of, we call them creators or skilled professionals, that we source um, from 12 time zones. They work for over 150 of our partners. Um, so companies that are dev shops or consultants, that, you know, we are able to source in the excess capacity they have of, of talent. Of talent. Mm -hmm. uh, roughly now close to 80,000 people on the network um, that we can get access to um, at any point. And then we have an assembly line that connects these building blocks to these creators that allows our customers to get um, like fully built custom software. Um, and then once the software is built, they can buy uh, uh, like an insurance policy. It's called Builder Care. It's like Apple Care. And the idea is you pay this monthly fee and your software never goes out of date. So if you mm -hmm. were that 
SME building Uber for ski instructors because you're a ski school. You know, the last thing you want to do is spend money building software and then in three months it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have to go spend to build it again. And then finally is software obviously needs a ton of other things to run, hosting, infrastructure, analytics. Like we've figured out on average between seven and 11 different providers that are needed to keep custom software running, uh, irrespective of what it is. Uh, and we've put all of those together into a single marketplace where it's cheaper to buy everything from your AWS or DigitalOcean or Azure hosting through to how you buy analytics or even how you buy additional services to keep that running. And so our, our hope is that we're the partner for life for, for those customers. That was kind of my next question is, is this aimed at people wanting to get an MVP product out the door before hiring a, 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 a either a dev shop or a team of engineers? Or is this really something you could use throughout, you know, as a replacement to an engineering team? Which one? So look, I think it depends on the audience in the market. So some interesting stats. Last year, half a trillion dollars was spent by SMEs building custom software. 76% of it failed. That's four times vision fund in terms of sort of amount of capital deployed. And then unfortunately capital that did not see the light of day. Um, a part of that audience will be people trying to build an MVP. Part of that audience will be small businesses doing digital transformation. A part of that will be people doing a side hustle. A part of that will be people that are building greenfield new business ideas that still would be considered an SME. Um, I think depending on the audience, their want and wish could be different. You know, we, we work with a bunch of startups where we build the MVP, we end up building V1, then they may take the code internally, but they continue to use us for the insurance or the assurance and the marketplace. We work with a bunch of enterprises, you know, everyone from the BBC, Virgin Unite, um, uh, the San Francisco Giants, where we've built technology um, uh, for them, you know, which is end-to-end. Um, and obviously, as you go further downstream towards SMEs or dreamers, um, they uh, will use you sort of throughout the process because they have an existing business they want to run. Gotcha. Could I actually, you know, replace my product manager and designer and engineers with this? Is this sort of a viable alternative to an ongoing development team like that or, or more supplemental? No, I think, look, I think it depends. And that's where I say context of geography matters. So in Asia, for example, many um, startups do not have technology co-founders. They have business people or business mm-hmm. idea owners. And so for them, we would be the partner for life. They, 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 would, they may hire a tech person at some point in the future, a technology leader who is managing their relationship to make sure what they get is what they want. But their job is more to manage delivery and manage expectation than it is to actually write code. Um, in the U.S., it sort of can go either way, right? Uh, you can have uh, augmentation projects, MVP projects, early stage startup MVPs, um, and your uh, existing engineering team may be doing their core area. There's nothing that prevents us from being the only set of people on, on, uh, on the floor doing stuff for that particular company. I think it's more cultural, right? And I think it's also the minute you're dealing with startups, it's also sort of the venture capital mentality towards outsourced development and which is fine at the MVP level, but a little bit probably frowned upon at the non-MVP level. Sure. Yeah. No, I remember when I, I'm a business guy, I can't write a lick of code to save my, my life. And I had the idea for Founder Suite. I first spent maybe two months 
hunting around trying to find a technical co-founder that didn't go anywhere, right? <laughs> um, yeah. That's kind of a, a fantasy. And then, you know, talked to some offshore dev shops and that was sort of mixed. Ended up finding one that got me an MVP. But of course, as soon as that MVP is in the market and gets feedback, it's like, you know, a million changes and, and really had to rebuild it all, right? Um, so it's it's a definitely a problem. Uh, that you're and now you imagine you're still a sophisticated buyer, right? I would still say you're someone who understands product. Now you imagine the shop owner or the ski school owner or the producer, uh, the NGO, the school, the museum. They have no clue. Right. And yeah. they don't want to be sort of disenfranchised. They don't want to be uh, left behind. They're, they're sort of afraid of being irrelevant. Um, and, and a part of that is because they're, they're not technology people, just like people who drive cars are not mechanics. Yeah. Are you able to, cause that, that was something I had a long or, or steep learning curve with in turning my idea into kind of wireframes and specs and all that stuff. Are you able to sort of translate the NGOs concept into specs? Cause that there's definitely a. Well, I mean, yeah, we go from, we literally go from idea. I want to build an app. It's like Uber. It's for babysitters. I wanted, I wanted to do verification. I wanted to take payments. I need to make sure that my customers have re ability to review the babysitter, that kind of spec. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the level of conversation we have. And we translate that into user stories, wireframes, mockups, prototypes, ultimately an end app. And what we've done is sort of platform or uh, factor, factory or manufacturized development of software. Um, what are the, you know, when someone says I want to build an app like Uber, what does that mean? What is the contextual relevance of that? What are the basic features that are needed? What have other people that have built an Uber-like app added as features? What could we suggest to this customer? So because a lot of our process is machine run, um, both intelligent and non-intelligent, uh, everything from pricing and specking is machine assisted or machine done. Pricing is all machine done and it's an intelligent price and it's a learned price. Um, specking is machine suggested. Mm -hmm. um, so we have building blocks, we have workflows, we have templates, we have design pods, we have wireframe ideas. You know, how many times could you design a map view? Maybe three or four times. So all of these things become options that a customer can just pick and choose. Yeah. And what we've found is that if you're able to navigate people by giving them a set of crystallized options every single time, through those micro steps, they can get to a, a final spec. And therefore, for us, a final build. Got it. So how is this priced? What's the, uh, is it an hours, hourly based thing? Or I guess you're using machine learning and AI, so it's probably something else. How's this no, price? it's not. So, so what happens is that if you imagined, um, Traditional software is priced on how many hours it takes for people to write all the code. Mm -hmm. First thing we did away with is writing repetitive code. So what we've done is we've already, re re we've already written the repetitive code. Um, so assume 60% of all software is repetitive. We've written that once. Mm. Uh, it needs customization. Uh, and obviously, we split the cost of that 60% across a minimum number of customers. Depending on what that is, you know, Facebook login may be 100 customers. Uh, mixed panel integration may be 50 customers. Or Stripe may be 20 customers. Each customer then pays 1 20th, 1 50th, 100th of the price of the common code. Hmm. Then they pay a cost for integration or making it bespoke. That's all machine operated. And that machine decides how much budget to allocate for customization 
based on learned behavior, interdependence of building blocks, how complicated the entire app is, any specific keywords that have been used, like a bunch of things that go into it. And then it guarantees a price. It says your, your app or your web, web experience or your marketplace will not cost you more than say, I don't know, $20,000. If it goes over $20,000, it's at our cost. If, however, if we did it in half the time and you pay weekly up to that price, if we did it in half the time, you pay only half the amount. Hmm. Interesting. So there's, there's upside, there's downside protection in terms of cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get the benefit also of upside. How do you deal with the inevitable feature creep, scope creep <laughs> that, I mean, I'm guilty of it, you know, a lot, right? Every time we talk to a customer, I'm like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if we had these three more little widgets in the platform? Yeah. How do you do Right. That? And I think, I think that's a really interesting point, right? So, you know, when, a lot of how we allow people to build um, software is by selecting building blocks, right? And so um, if I share my screen, just to give you a quick example, you will see these building blocks, right? So this, this particular software has reservations, it has a dashboard, it has request management, but you've got 500 building blocks you can also add, desktop notifications or location-based alerts. Right? And so you're able to see what each of these are. You're able to add them. And so what happens is that customers have an issue with scope creep only when it sort of seems slightly weird on how you got to that price. But when you get to a customer and say, here are the 32 features you asked for. And then they come back and say, I want to add two more features. But now they come into it, what looks like Amazon.com. They, they go to the store. They say, I want you know, desktop notifications and location-based alerts. Right. They see the price, they add it. If they remove something, by the way, that's not being built, it deducts it. So it feels like a shopping cart experience, in which case no one feels cited because they know what they're getting. Um, and what we offer on the other side of it is when you want to keep changing designs or you want to make improvements, you've got pretty much unlimited room to do that. Mm-hmm. And, and what we have is a learned behavior that depending on the types of building blocks, their dependency, the type of customer, our system will become smarter and smarter in pricing the budget allocated for customization. So if we lose money on your project, it's sort of by the by for us. Yeah, cool. One more question and then I wanna talk about fundraising, uh, but do these sites start to look kind of homogenous or templated after a while or do you enable some sort of uh, design flair as well, right? Cause I think that's maybe something that I would worry about that my site looks like 40 no 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 no. so i think the thing is what we have is uh wireframes uh but um the wireframes are just starting points you know do you want it to look like this or this um this the process is that before developers write any of the front end it goes through a design it goes through a number of design spins um we're averaging sort of uh, on apps about three, 3.2 design spins where, you know, there's a, a design is done by a designer. It goes back to the customer, customer makes adjustments, goes back to the designer. That happens usually two or three times. We're seeing about three, 3.3 times. And that is where it becomes unique. But here's the thing, right? Uh, you can get to unique by having a hundred steps that are not unique, but it's the aggregate thing that is unique. For example, how many different ways could you design a friends list? four, yeah. six, but if you've done a thousand of them, there are only six. And, and actually we already know what's the best performing. 
We know which is going to yield the best result depending on what kind of thing you're trying to achieve. So then it's really about branding and look and feel and a little bit of customization. But because we're, we're, we're building on the back of collective learning, yeah. um, there is the, the customer is getting the benefit, not only of it just to, you know, not having to pay for all of that and it's getting it faster, but they're getting a lot of knowledge as if they were a large enterprise or a really large startup with lots of product managers. Sure. That's great. Cool. All right. Let's talk about fundraising. Um, very interesting business you have. What, uh, how much have you guys raised and over how many rounds? Uh, we have now raised 20, just maybe just over actually 29.5 billion. Uh, one round. One round. Which includes sort of like a point one round, which was a friends and family. Okay. You've been around four years, you mentioned before the yes. call. So I guess what- We what bootstrapped until August last year. And then uh, we did a friends and family in August, and then we announced our Series A in early October. What made you, after bootstrapping for a couple of years, what made you decide, all right, it's time to go raise some money? Well, I guess there's a little bit of historical, right? So in our first company, my best friend and I started, we gave away half the company for $500,000 because we were both 20 and it was my old bosses when I was in banking. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the time we exited that, we were down to 5%. Yeah. So I think this time we said, we got to get our batting average um, sort of a cricket terminology. We need to get our batting or bowling or uh, hooping average, whichever you want to look at it up so that we said, we're going to figure out the way to bootstrap this as long as possible. And that gave us the benefit of being able to make sort of, um, I would say more informed decisions and not having to keep running between funding rounds. Yeah. Um, and we also built a business that could create cash. Um, and we were able to prove out a bunch of hypotheses, show there was a market, really understand our customer shows, you know, double digit, um, a couple of last couple of years, triple digit growth, um, and show the inhibitor was now the things that we needed to build. And so the point of it, which we wanted to start raising capital was because we realized there were things that we wanted to build. We wanted to now scale to the next scale point, And those things would require us to invest in advance of the amount of cash we can generate. And because we have a very sticky business, both, you know, building software and then all the things that are needed to keep it running, we have very little churn. So we have a lot of customers that have been customers for years. Yeah. So, so you did a friends and family. Do you want to share the amount for that? Or is that a, it was about one and a half million. Uh huh. And then, and it was a part of the 29.5. It converted into it. So how did you kind of go from, this is somewhat atypical of going from a bootstrap to little friends and family, then to a very large round versus raising a million, then 4 million, then 10. Like what was the, the jump there? So I guess the, the thing was we spent a year probably prior thinking about raising money, having conversations, having a couple of false starts, not attacking the problem in the right way, not being able to narrate our business and the company the right way, like a like bunch of mistakes. right? And, and as founders that had done it before, like mistakes that I would say that were sort of very uh, like slapping a wet fish across your face type mistakes. <laughs> okay. uh, and I think we learned we learned very quickly from them on the right way of messaging it, what was sort of missing, especially because our business became harder and harder to explain because you had this really weird contradiction between where we were relative to the stage of the market, like how big the market could be, but where we were relative in terms of stage of revenue, being profitable, being cash flow positive. And they just seemed to be this continuous yin-yang that we couldn't, get people to understand both ends of it. So we did the friends and family first for that purpose, but we had already started, I would say, getting some thoughts and discussions around what we would do as a series A. Now our original plan for the series A was going to be 10 million. 
Mm. The stretch goal was 15 million. Um, we ended up raising just shy of 30, including the friends and family. And, uh, and actually there was a lot more, there was and still is a lot more capital on the table. So why go from 10 to 30? Because that means more dilution. Why not break it out? You know, what was the... So I think um, a part of it was uh, 10 was never going to be enough to get to where we wanted to get to. It's not to say that 30 is the end all, but 30 gets us so much further. And I think we thought very heavily around, um, and a part of it was down to meaningful ownership. You know, a lot of the folks that we really wanted to work with, uh, and we have some, you know, some incredible investors, um, they wanted meaningful ownership. Um, and you know, these are guys that invested in Facebook, Airbnb, Uber, Spotify. Um, and so, uh, you know, we wanted to make sure we gave them that and that meant, and we wanted to make sure we had more than one investor. Um, you know, we wanted a couple of folks because they gave us diversity of region, diversity of input, diversity of help to be able to achieve that. The minimum sum we were coming to was sort of 25 million and anything above 25 million was just because we had more, more sort of, I would say almost like angels coming into the A, but folks that would add immense value. So when you say meaningful ownership, you're talking about giving these venture funds enough 20, I don't know what the number is, 25, 30% that they're going to be paying attention to? Well, yeah, but also car carving it between the three or four, three or the four of them, right? So the idea is that most Series A funds don't like to own 5%. Sure. Uh, they, you know, they like to own a meaningful amount. So the question is, if you're going to give away that meaningful percentage, typically in the Series A, you dilute somewhere between 15 and 30%. Uh, depending on how hot you are. Uh, and so you're going to give that away irrespective. So you might as well take as much as you can to give the same percentage away. And who led the round? I think it's publicly disclosed. I've got Lake yes, Star. Yes, Jungle Ventures at Lake Star led the round. Um, okay. And then others that were a part of the round were SoftBank's AI fund. It's called DeepCore. Um, and then a, a sort of a bunch of, uh, bunch of other people. Angels after that? Yeah, angels and a couple of corporates but we're not allowed to disclose here okay what i'm not familiar with lake star and jungle what uh what can you tell me about those guys are they so lake star is a european fund uh amazing guys klaus and manu uh you know really founder friendly very much get it um tried and tested experience uh, they, you know, invested in Facebook and Uber and Spotify. Uh, mm. There is, there are a billion dollar funds. So there's a lot of capital behind them. Um, they gave us a really strong view of scale, and we've seen, you know, these billion dollar businesses grow. They've been a part of these marketplaces, uh, and I think, say, in in, in particular, uh, Manu has like a really strong view of how to build org, how to structure org. And I think that's been really helpful. Uh, and then Jungle Ventures uh, is a Singapore fund, um, sort of APAC focused. You know, we have a very big uh, Asia Pacific uh, uh, opportunity and actually an operation. Very strong SME focus. So they only really invest in companies that are focused on small medium enterprises. Mm -hmm. um, so they gave us a massive amount of dimensioning and understanding of different types of SMEs, what works, what works in enterprise as well, very SaaS driven, even, you know, we're, we're sort of a quasi SaaS company, right? Front end is SaaS, back end is marketplace. Mm. Uh, and um, we've learned a huge amount from both of them. Uh, and, you know, uh, interestingly, like uh, you know, Jungle, some of their investors are people like Cisco, uh, Temasek, 
like really well-known, well-known guys. Yeah, cool. So very interesting. How did you get in touch or how did you find Jungle Ventures and Lake Star, given you're based in California? They're not, you know, what was the path to the... So I, uh, Westbit headquartered between London and LA. Okay. Um, so I, you know, my accent probably gives away sort of, I'm a Brit, born and brought up in England. Um, and so our home is still there. My, you know, we're here till April and my family's there, but we go backwards and forwards. Uh, and so I met, I met Lake Star at sort of a bunch of the European tech events, mm. met Manu, as I said, great guy, really got along with him. I felt like we had a really strong meeting of sort of minds and synergy. Um, and, um, uh, Jungle met sort of very, um, opportunistically through a, a, a common friend in, in Hong Kong and, one of the associates from, or one of the investors from uh, Jungle was in town, met her, eventually met the, the, the founding partners. Again, strong relationship. I, like, it just felt right. It was you know, your gut telling you that these, this was someone that you could ring up and say, hey, I screwed this up. This didn't work out. Like, don't shoot me over it, but here's how I think I can resolve it. And, you know, it was, to me, what was testament with both guys was I was able to ring them even through the process and say, this is not going right or I'm having these issues. And I knew I wasn't getting judged on the short-term problems. Mm. You, were, you were doing that before they wrote a check? Or? Before the, yeah, before they wrote a check. Uh-huh. I mean, obviously, after we'd agreed everything. But uh, I was able to even lean on some of them for advice. I remember with, with Jungle and with Lakestar, they were making introductions to customers before they'd even move forward. This came up on a, a, a web, webinar conference we did earlier today with Founder Institute. And we were talking about how, you know, if you have investors that are interested in your business, test them out a little bit. Put forth a problem. Let's see how helpful they are, even before, you know. Yeah. come on board. I think that's actually a good thing that more founders should do. Investors are going to hate me for saying that, right? Because it's just giving them more, more work to do. Well, but- I also think, look, I think a lot of founders also get afraid, right? Uh, you want to portray that everything's amazing and it's all great. The problem is most people can see through that. Yeah. And there's only so much bravado that you can hide. I think the thing is, if you have a fundamentally strong business, it's going to have issues. I don't know of any company that's not had issues. I don't know anyone that's only just been a rocket ship, just mm-hmm. impossible. Yeah. You mentioned you met um, Lake Star at a tech event. This is one of these questions that you know founders always ask me, is it worth it to go to disrupt or whatever? How did you meet an investor at a tech event? Cause I think this is- I actually, actually met, yeah. well, so and I met, I met, um, uh, so I met Manu sitting in Robert Scoble's session at um, founders, which is sort of the uh, an upstream version hosted by Web Summit guys, and it's sort of like for founders, and it's a smaller community, and um, I dare I say it, it's invite only. Uh, and so Patty was kind enough to invite us. I ended up sitting next to Manu. We had floating conversation about something completely different uh, many many years ago. Uh, then we ended up uh, with uh, a couple of sort of well-known folks in the European tech circle uh, drinking, dr- drinking way, well into the night in the closing party and, uh, and just kept in touch and kept having conversations and I kept him up to date and everything was just a conversation like, hey, I was thinking about this or and there was never a sell, there was never an ask from his end. Um, and we actually, you know, we tried a couple of times to think about how we could do something and the timing wasn't right and you know, he was super transparent, like this is why it's not right for us right now. 
Uh, and, you know, as Manu will tell you, we kept coming back every single time we'd get a no, six months later, we'd come back, hey, look, like you said we couldn't do this, we did this. Or, hey, look, like we, we grew double again. And in fact, I remember at one web summit, probably two years later, we invited the, their entire partnership through separate emails to come to our booth at the same time. And so we effectively almost called a partner meeting at our booth to show them, look, this is what we're working on. And even then we didn't get a, a full green light to go ahead, but we were like super persistent. And I think it's also that persistence and following up and, you know, continuing to deliver and showing progress that mm -hmm. like ultimately got Manu excited enough and, uh, and, and, and Klaus. And then obviously the rest of the team. Talk about that. Let's go into that a little more detail. Like the persistence, that's a great anecdote. Other examples of just that persistence following up, like monthly emails, quarterly emails, I don't know, any other. I don't know if monthly and quarterly emails work so much. I think for what worked for us, and we had the same thing with Jungle as well. When we first spoke to Jungle, they said, we're not sure, there's not any investors before, maybe we'll come in the next round. We don't really understand the space well enough. It's not something that we've done a lot in. We sort of get it, makes more sense. Uh, we kept keeping them up to date. You know, here are our numbers. Here's what we're doing. This person has said yes. This person's interested. Look what we did here. Here's a video to look at. Not, not nothing that felt prescribed. It was more that we just want to keep you up to date. Uh, and then, um, you know, we said, hey, look, this this has happened. Would you be interested? And uh, the conversation restarted. It was so, was sort of serendipitous because they were thinking about us. We were thinking about them. And a couple of conversations later, we were in DD. Now, when you got into due diligence with these guys and were, did you then use that to go talk to some other investors that had been uh, in your periphery or, or, you know? No, I think before that we were, we, we ran a dog and pony show where, you know, we, we had lots of people showing interest. I would say hand on heart, we knew who we wanted to run with. And as soon as they said, yes, we were like, we're ready to rock and roll. And then what we simply said to both Lakestar and, and Jungle is, look, you are our guys. Um, you know, uh, SoftBank's already in. So I uh, really, really like them, Deep Core. And, and, and I, I know Nikki Sama for almost a decade. And he's the managing partner there. Um, so I was like, this is it. Like, we really like three of you. Now, we probably want to bring some more folks in. How do we work with you to bring those people in? Yeah, gotcha. Cool. Good stuff. You mentioned uh, you sort of went out uh, previously and had a few false starts. And you had, you know, what are some of the interesting mistakes you made, or or, or things you would do differently, right? If you, uh, I'm you know. actually glad we had the false starts, right? I think one of the false starts was we made the decision not to go go forward on one because we just think there was a fit. Mm. We thought like the you know we in our gut we didn't feel like this was the right partnership for this time. Sure. And that gave us massive, uh, you know, conflict, right? Because at one hand, it was a really nice term sheet, great valuation, lots of cash. On the other hand, and then, then we had a bunch of follow-ons that were linked to it. And to basically abolish an entire round um, on the back of that is super scary. But I think, uh, I'm glad we did it because we, we came out so much smarter, so much wiser, built better product, continue to focus on growth. And then now we have just incredible investors across the board. Pure just gut instinct or were there little signals, little signs that this wasn't going to be a good partnership? Anything you can like pick out? You know, I think um, hiring senior people 
investors making these early product decisions, they are all gut, gut reactions. You may choose to use the neocortex to explain and rationalize these things, but you're post-rationalizing, not pre-rationalizing. Yeah. Um, I have learned, especially in the last six months, to trust my gut so much more now that there is something, you know, call it, call it quantum entanglement or, 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 or what have you, or just the cosmos talking to you. But there is, there's something about when your stomach tells you what's right or wrong, you just run with it. And if, it, if you get it wrong enough times, that's also a telling sign. Sure. Yeah. Good point. Awesome. Any other, uh, tips or anecdotes we haven't covered? Uh, I mean, I think- Yeah, so I think there's one, right? I think one yeah. is, and it sort of goes back to persistence. If you believe it, and you really, really have a strong why, your purpose is super clear, um, you will always make it. Because luck is a probability piece, right? And as we know about basic stats, you increase time, the, the, the strike rate will increase. Like right? you will strike. Right? It's just, you just need enough time. So if you're patient enough and perseverant enough and you have a strong enough why, what, what, what a strong enough why does is it increases the probability. Um, what, a, what persistence does is increases the likelihood you, you get a strike. And so you need to have both a strong why and a strong um, persistence. Mm -hmm. and, and sort of con conversely, persistence comes from a strong belief. Yeah, no, I like that. That's a great kind of equation, <laughs> equation for startup and funding success. But it is very true. And I think it's, uh, I've seen that. Don't go into something, you know, don't go into something because it's going to make money. It's sort of irrelevant. Uh, lots of things will make money, right? To me, and, and, and this goes back to sort of our companies, you know, why we're, we're in everything we're doing, we're pushing the boundary of conventional thinking. And that is a very strong why it, it you know we only hire people for example that are passionate about loosely held values that means they're passionate about something but they're not tied to it um where you know having a strong sense of purpose means you're getting people that are going to be loyal investors that are loyal teams that are loyal customers that are loyal not manipulators mm -hmm. because when you manipulate someone into joining manipulate someone into investing manipulate someone into being a customer um it's short-lived. It's a matter of time before someone else manipulates them out. Sure. True. Yeah. Good stuff. I love that. Let's end on that equation. Um, awesome. If people want to learn more, engineer.ai. Yes. Correct? Yes. And anything you want to plug or promote or should just people check it out? I think where, you know, if you have an idea and you've been scared to build it, maybe didn't have enough money, didn't know where to find people, weren't sure of how to go about it, come check us out, right? If nothing else, you'll get a, you'll get a free or a discounted spec call with, a, with an expert who will just help you brainstorm that idea. And if we're able to help you in your journey and maybe you've already built something and you just wanna use the marketplace so you can get all those things cheaper, um, you know, we're, here for, we're here for the long run and, and our goal is to partner with our customers to build and run whatever they've built or their ideas. Sounds cool. I wish I knew about you guys four years ago. It would have saved a lot of wasted cycles, but hey. You but know. Nathan, we're going to help you with the new version of Founder Suite. <laughs> there we go. Oh, believe me, we have no shortage of roadmaps. So there, there could be a, a time when I'm calling on you. Awesome. 
Good stuff, sir. I appreciate sucking. This is great. Have a good uh, rest of your week, and uh, we'll catch you after your next round. Fantastic. Over and out. Thank Take you. care.